0: Hello, and welcome to the Full Circle Podcast, your source for insights into the science and art of endurance sports training and racing. I'm your host, Coach Laura Henry. Cadence is a metric that is so often talked about, but do athletes actually understand why it's so important? This episode, we are going to talk about why cadence is such an important metric in cycling. So to start things off, what is cadence? In cycling, cadence is a measure of the rotational speed of the crank, the crank of the bicycle. So, that is the part of the bicycle that connects through the bottom bracket or through the bottom part of the bicycle where the pedals attach to. It's basically like the arm that reaches down that the pedals connect into. That's the crank. So, cadence is expressed in revolutions per minute or RPMs. If you are a cyclist or you trade in cycling, how you can know what cadence you are currently utilizing or leveraging is to get a cadence sensor, which is a small little pod that attaches to the crank arm of your bike. Garmin sells one for like 40 bucks, 50 bucks. Um, if you have a power meter, an actual power meter, then power meters also do record cadence as well. If you use a smart trainer, that smart trainer is gonna likely record cadence as well, especially if it's a direct drive smart trainer. So there's a lot of ways that you could potentially record cadence or be able to reflect back on that data. And when you utilize any one of these methods, it's going to record the data in your workout file that can get paired to a cycling computer or to a Garmin watch. And you can not only see it in real time during a workout, but then you can look back on it historically and compare your results over time and see the trends, see what you default to, see what you do. So simply put, Cadence is the pedaling rate at which the athlete is turning the pedals. It is how fast or slow the cyclist is pedaling. Cadence is related to and directly proportional to wheel speed, but it is a distinct and separate measurement and it, cadence, changes depending on which gearing the cyclist selects. The gearing changes the crank's rotational speed or the cadence so that it matches the rotational speed of the drive wheel. The drive wheel on a bicycle is the rear wheel, since that's where the gears are, and thus that's what's connected to the cranks and other components of the bicycle's drivetrain. It's important to note that there are two main ways to generate power on a bicycle, muscular force and cadence. So what is a quote-unquote normal or typical cadence? This is actually highly individualized because it depends on quite a few factors, including the type of riding that the athlete is doing and on their physiology to include their personal distribution of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. These are the two types of skeletal muscle fibers. Slow-twitch muscle fibers, also known as type 1 muscle fibers, are fatigue-resistant muscle fibers that are utilized for sustained, smaller movements and postural control. Slow-twitch muscle fibers are more aerobic in nature, meaning that they use oxygen to produce adenosine triphosphate, better known as ATP, which is the energy that drives and supports many of the processes in our cells and bodies to include exercise. These types of muscle fibers support long endurance activities such as distance running and long course triathlon. And actually, if you're familiar with the endurance sports online forum Slow Twitch, that's why they named themselves this is after these muscle fibers. Conversely, Fast twitch muscle fibers, also known as type 2 muscle fibers, provide bigger and more powerful forces than their slow twitch counterparts, but they can only produce these bigger and more powerful forces for shorter durations, and these fibers fatigue quickly. Fast twitch muscle fibers are more anaerobic in nature, which means that they produce ATP in the absence of oxygen, and fast twitch muscle fibers support quick powerful movements such as sprinting and weightlifting. It's really important to note that all skeletal muscles in the human body contain both slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers, but the ratios of how much each individual person has can differ depending on a variety of factors, including muscle function, the athlete's age, their training age, which is the amount of time they've been active or doing sport, and the type of training they're doing. There's a big misconception out there about that people either have slow Twitch or fast Twitch. So really remember that you have both. It's just different ratios of each. Going back to the question of what is a normal typical cadence, the data that I've looked at over the years, and I've looked at thousands of files from hundreds of individual athletes over the years, has shown me that most endurance athletes will default to or self-select a cadence in the range of 60 to 80 RPMs. While the ideal cadence can vary depending on the type of event that the athlete is training for, it is beneficial if athletes can train themselves to have a self-selected or default cadence that is in excess of 80 RPMs consistently. For endurance athletes, 70 to 90 RPMs is efficient, but it is relatively weak. For this reason, I actually usually recommend that athletes aim for 80 to 90 RPMs for long course triathlons. So that would be 70.3 distance or greater so that they are in the higher end of that efficiency range, but they're not fatiguing their legs out too much before they have to run either a half marathon or marathon off the bike. Several studies have shown that run time to fatigue, aka the amount of time it takes before a runner feels fatigued in the run leg of a triathlon is reduced when an athlete has a lower cadence in their bike leg, so below 90 RPMs. Because of this, a lot of athletes have taken this to mean that lower must be better, and they use it as kind of a confirmation bias that if their cadence is lower, that it's okay. It's really important to remember, that, like all things, there's a Goldilocks sweet spot, and there is balance. The ideal cadence for long course triathletes is still higher than the average athlete's self-selected cadence. So most athletes can still benefit from working on this skill. 90 to 100 RPM averages are better for shorter racing and time trials. So things like triathlon and cycling events of those shorter distances. Ranges from 100 to 120 RPMs are most effective when the highest power is needed for a short period of time. So for example, during a surge, a pass, a sprint, or an attack on the bike. As I mentioned before, there there is literature out there that accurately states that lower cadences around 60 RPM are the most metabolically efficient because the rate at which oxygen is consumed is decreased compared with higher cadences. However, and this is important, there is more to riding a bike than being metabolically efficient. At lower cadences, muscles contract at speeds well below the rate at which they are actually strongest. So as the power that you're trying to create rises, the cadence at which your muscles are most effectively able to produce that power increases as well. So while pedaling slowly has the overall lowest metabolic cost, it actually effectively limits an athlete's ability to produce high power. And so this is why I was urging earlier that we don't fall into this trap of confirmation bias saying, oh, lower cadence has longer time to fatigue on the wrong leg in a triathlon, and 60 RPMs is the most metabolically efficient. That's only part of the picture. We really need to be looking at the whole picture and about all factors to consider. Most athletes who have been doing an endurance sport that involves cycling for more than a single season generally understand, or at least have heard of, pedaling at higher cadences is a good thing. Even though athletes understand that this statement is true, I've observed that many athletes do not understand why it is true. So as mentioned earlier, we have two ways to generate power or create forward motion on a bicycle. There's muscular strength, also known as force, and then there's pedal speed, which is also known as cadence or torque. These two tools, muscular strength and pedal speed, can be blended at both high and low intensities to generate speed. So there's four main ways that this is done. High force, high velocity is the first. This is where high muscle contractions and high cadence are being leveraged. So we're using both muscular force and cadence to generate power. Second is high force, low velocity. This is where there are high muscle contractions and low cadence. So we are primarily relying on muscular force to generate power in this situation. Third, is low force, high velocity. This is where there are low muscle contractions and high cadence. So in this situation, we're relying primarily on cadence to be the generation of power. Finally, number four is low force, low velocity. This is where there is low muscle contractions and low cadence. This means that we're not really utilizing either muscle contractions or cadence to generate power. Out of these four, high force, low velocity, and low force, high velocity are the two most commonly deployed methods to generate power. They both generate power and speed. They only differ in how that power and speed is produced. So there are three main reasons why utilizing a higher 80 plus RPM average cadence is effective. Number one, increased performance and endurance. It reduces leg strain on muscles, which produces a longer duration of stronger and more powerful efforts and or a higher percentage of the ride having stronger or powerful efforts. So basically, we're reducing strain or we're maximizing the amount of time in a ride that we're going to be strong. Number two is that we have a greater utilization of the cardiovascular system. The cardiovascular system has a greater ability to produce power when compared with the muscular system. So remember, folks, the heart is the strongest muscle in the human body. That's part of the cardiovascular system. It even has its own type of muscle cells. There are three main types of muscle cells. There's cardiac muscle cells, skeletal muscle cells, and smooth muscle cells. Skeletal muscle cells are the ones that are in our muscles that connect our bones. Smooth muscle cells are present throughout other organ systems, such as the gastrointestinal, respiratory, and urinary systems. And then there's cardiac muscle only in the heart. So the cardiovascular system has a greater ability to produce power than the skeletal muscle system. Slow muscle contractions utilize both the aerobic and and anaerobic system. This means low cadence utilizes both the aerobic and the anaerobic system. Speeding up those contractions, aka speeding up your cadence, decreases reliance on the anaerobic system, which increases endurance. So remembering that aerobic is when we're using oxygen to create energy. This is a very sustainable system. Anaerobic means that we are not using oxygen, which means that it has a very finite short limit when it can be utilized. So if we can decrease reliance on that anaerobic system and switch more to the aerobic system, we are going to be able to be stronger for longer. Finally, number three, we get decreased glycogen consumption when we spin at higher cadences. This is because we use less fast twitch muscle fibers when we spin at a higher cadence. Fast twitch muscle fibers consume larger quantities of muscle glycogen than slow twitch muscle fibers do. Glycogen is the name for the stored form of glucose, aka sugar, which is the body's main source of energy. It's actually the most important source of energy for all organisms throughout the entire planet, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Muscle glycogen, in this case, means the energy stored in our muscles. So if we are using more fast twitch muscle fibers, then we are going to burn through more fuel faster. If we learn to use more slow twitch muscle fibers, which are the fibers that are deployed when we're spinning at a higher cadence, we ultimately decrease our energy needs over the course of an event, which makes us more efficient and again, keeps us sustained on our energy levels for longer throughout the event. So now we understand why training to spin at a higher cadence is advantageous. Even though it is advantageous, it's often a challenging skill to change or to train for many athletes because for many of them, it requires changing the percentage of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. This takes time to make that conversion, to change those ratios. And not only does it take time, it takes a long time. In my experience, it takes at least, and this is the bare minimum, it takes at least six months of consistently targeting and paying attention to cadence for a higher cadence than your self-selected cadence to feel more normal. So if you are someone who normally defaults to or self-selects around 65 RPMs, it's gonna take at least six months for you to even feel better spinning in the 70s. If you wanna bump it up more, it's gonna take even longer. So this is a very long project for people who wanna embark on it. In my own life, I can tell you that I actually spent a year focusing on this back in the early 2010s. And for the last 10 years, my self-selected default cadence has been 20 RPMs higher than it was in the late 2000s. So what's nice about this is once we do put in the work and get this change, it is something that does stay with us. It is long lasting, but it does take a long time. And it can take, like I said, even years to really see a complete transition, you know, to come up from like I said 65 RPMs to maybe like 80 85, it might take 12 18 24 months. It might take a couple years to see that range of improvement, but if you focus on this and you do put in the work, you will see gains over time. You just have to have patience for it. That being said, that long timeline is something that a lot of athletes don't have patience for in my experience. My observation has been that if some athletes don't see results quickly, they get bored quickly. Also, if they don't see results quickly, they assume or talk themselves into thinking that it doesn't matter. If athletes think that something seems easy, quote unquote, and then they discover that it's not and or that they won't see gains for a while, it's not uncommon for them to get frustrated with that hard thing and then to shy away from doing it as a result. That being said, folks, doing something challenging is good for us. Doing something that's hard is good for us. Doing something that requires focus is good for us. Part of why this takes such a long time is that we actually have to train our nerves and how they communicate with our muscles. So effectively, we're trying to train those nerves and how they communicate with our muscles to work in a different way from what they've, number one, done for a long time. And number two, which is related to number one, is different from what your default or self-selected setting is, so a.k.a. what your physiology on a cellular level likely lends itself to. And this is always going to be work, and it's always likely going to be difficult work when you're having to put in the work. It's important to note that strength is not the limiting factor here. It doesn't matter how much you can torque down on the pedals. It doesn't matter how much you can leg press. It doesn't matter how much you can squat because strength isn't the problem. The communication pathways on the neural level are. We're not just aiming to change the percentage of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers when we work on cadence. We're seeking to actually train the neuromuscular system. The neuromuscular system connects muscles and nerves, which is what controls the body's movements and functions. Training the neuromuscular system is challenging because we are essentially seeking to rewire ourselves on some level. So imagine our neural system as being like electricity in your house. We're effectively seeking to rewire that in our bodies when we try to train this system. It often feels easier to athletes to go at a higher cadence when there is a higher resistance force, aka higher gears, more power output, more torque, when it feels like there's something to resist against when you're pedaling, because the higher power output naturally recruits more of those fast twitch muscle fibers. So if you impose more force or resistance through the mechanical aspects of the bike, through the gearing it's actually easier to go at a higher cadence. It's harder if you take away that force and focus only on the neural system. Doing this, spinning at a higher cadence only when there is higher force in play is often the default neural pathway for a lot of athletes. So it's nice to think about these pathways as deer paths or hiking trails in the woods. The neural pathways that are the most used are the clearest and most worn in. So it's the easiest to default to them. So very much like you would default to the cleared path in the woods if you're walking through the woods, your brain and your body is gonna default to that neural pathway that is most utilized. It takes time to develop new neural pathways and to forge new quote unquote trails in your brain. However, as I mentioned earlier, once these new neural pathways are forged, they are long lasting. And that's for all the reasons we just discussed. This is what, in my opinion, makes it absolutely worth taking the time to work on cadence. It's not necessarily something that goes away once it's trained, or it doesn't go away easily once it's actually trained and these new neural pathways are forged. You may have heard that training to spin at a higher cadence has been called by some the forgotten quadrant. I actually think it's more accurate to say that it's the ignored quadrant, My humble opinion after all these years is that many athletes have heard about the reasons why it's good to train this system, but since it's hard, they choose not to, and they choose to pretend like not training it won't be a big deal for them. Let's remember, folks, humans are extremely, extremely excellent rationalizers, and we can generally talk ourselves into just about anything, including talking ourselves into other opinions and thoughts about what we can and should be doing in our endurance sports training. Many of the athletes that I've coached over the years have worked with me for four or more consecutive years. This has allowed me to get a front row seat to athlete behaviors and how things evolve over time. I have some athletes who I've encouraged to work on this and who, for one reason or another, have chosen not to. These athletes are not focusing on improving their cadence averages, and they haven't focused on improving their cadence averages for prolonged periods of time or the necessary prolonged periods of time. They aren't doing this maybe as much as they might think they are focusing on it, or they might hope that they are focusing on it. They also might not think it's that important for them to change this. These athletes are still at their same cadences that they were when they first hired me, or they're pretty darn close. Conversely, I have other athletes who I'm coaching who have taken my advice seriously and they have focused on this for a prolonged period of time. And they not only saw improvements in their average cadence, but they also saw compounded performance gains over time stemming from that body of work that they completed. They saw their performance improve as a result of the new neural pathways that they were able to forge. So in essence, yes, and I do get that this is difficult to hear. I am saying that a lot of why I think that athletes don't work on increasing their average cadence or put in the time that is necessary to increase their average cadence or even just consider changing this boils down to a combination of a lack of willingness to do it and perhaps a bit of ignorance about why it is so important to. That being said, all of this is why I'm talking about it. I really want to help explain why it is so important to consider working on and to actually work on improving average cadence. When we seek to actively train this, we want to remove that higher output or the usage of higher gears, faster speeds, more torque. When we do that, we're aiming to train the neuromuscular connection itself this is what can lead to less fatigue and less glycogen depletion. And this is very advantageous for triathletes to do before the run leg of a triathlon starts because it sets up for a better run performance. It's also advantageous for cyclists to do for cycling only events. And perhaps paradoxically for some athletes, sometimes the biggest gains athletes see by working on improving their cadence are actually in other disciplines such as the run. Whether they're triathletes or running is their only primary sport. This is, again, because we are training those neural pathways. This has cross-pollination effects into other forms of movement. I want to make it perfectly clear. Working on cadence obviously does benefit an athlete's cycling performance as well. But there are these cross-pollination benefits which make it even more important to work on. Triathletes should always be aiming for the strongest performance across all three disciplines, swim, bike, run. Sometimes we use one discipline, such as the bike, to make gains in another, such as the run. And this is something I don't think a lot of folks fully appreciate or maybe even know how to deploy in their own training if they're self-coached. That being said, it opens a lot of possibilities for how to see those improvements, and I think that that's really exciting. It's also important to note that even though I'm advocating for increasing average cadence for a lot of cyclists... It's also important to train at a variety of cadences because there are always different situations that will require different cadences, such as a hill climb when cadence is going to be lower, passes when cadence will will be higher, descents when cadence may or may not actually be in play, and then flats, which depending on if it's a true flat or a false flat may require a different range of cadence to get through efficiently and with less fatigue. Training a variety of cadences helps athletes be stronger for when they do encounter these situations, whether that's in training or racing. So the key takeaways from today are that cycling cadence matters, and it matters in more than just cycling. It is something that is challenging to work on, but it is worth working on. It takes a long time to see results, but once those results are in place, they are long lasting. Take a look at your own cycling habits and behaviors and ask yourself if you could benefit from putting in focused work in this area. That was another episode of the Full Circle Podcast. Subscribe to the Full Circle Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you listen to, please be sure to leave us a rating and review as this goes a long way in helping us reach others. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Full Circle podcast are those of the individual. As always, we love to hear from you and we value your feedback. Please send us an email at podcast at fullcircleendurance.com or visit us at fullcircleendurance.com backslash podcast. To find training plans, see what other coaching services we offer, or to join our community, please visit fullcircleendurance.com. I'm Coach Laura Henry. Thanks for listening.